Hi, I'm Drew. My pronouns are he, him, his, elle, and I am a general pediatrician with a large practice of uh, transgender youth, um, and I'm glad to be here today. And I am Lizette. My pronouns are she, ella, and her, and I am the proud mother of a soon-to-be 13-year-old transgender son. Uh, oh, you have to stop saying almost 13. I can't believe it. I know. It's like <laughs> two weeks away. And um, local national advocate and a small business owner. And this is... I Stand By You. With Lizette. And Drew. Together, we talk about allyship. Building community. And showing up for one another. Welcome. Welcome. I think we've got a great show today. Um, and... Mm-hmm. It's a lot of fun to record. It was really good. I'm so excited. I hope you all enjoy it. Good afternoon. Um, we've got a guest um, I've been really excited about. Um, and you know what, Michelle, why don't I let you introduce yourself first before I throw out the topic? Sure. Uh, thank you guys for having me. Uh, my name is Michelle Rascon Canales, and I'm a Chicana, uh, born and raised here in Tucson, Arizona, and in Sonora, Mexico. Uh, I'm a PhD student in social cultural anthropology, and I'm a teacher. I teach anthropology at U of A, and I had my former career as a as an MSW. I was a licensed social worker and worked um, for seven years with undocumented children and undocumented and mixed status families in in the Phoenix area. Thank you wow. for being here. Thank you guys for having me. This is my first podcast. I'm new to podcasts, so it's my first podcast engagement. I'm very excited. I three years ago someone was talking about podcasts and I was like I don't even know what that is. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that um, although actually when I read your biography I was like wow there's so many things so many things that we I talk want to, to you talk about. to you about. <laughs> um, we'll start with um, the the um, part of it that really at first. Um, Got, got me looking around for someone who could talk to us about it. So um, as a pediatrician in a community health center in Tucson um, and with the COVID outbreak, um, I'm, I'm not one of the guys um, saving lives. Um, I'm not in the ER. I'm not in a critical care unit. Uh, my job is to try and keep, keep people out of those places unless they need to be there. Um, and recently, my biggest challenge, kids aren't getting very sick, but I can't remember the last time I went more than a couple of days without hearing um, about one of the abuelas, one of the grandmothers, the nanas in our community, um, either dying or being in the ICU. And... I can, these are the women who usually at doctor's visits are sitting there um, watching everything I do 
and either nodding their approval or giving me a look, which I love. (laughs) (laughs) And I miss seeing them. Right now, they don't come into the office at all because we only have one parent with each child. Mm. So I miss not seeing them at all. And then I realize some of them I will never see again. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just... I'm so worried about what that's going to do to our community and our families. Yeah, absolutely. I think it has cha- it's shaken our community and some of the values that we hold for sure. Um, I think, well, I mean, the Latinx, you know, it's such a big umbrella term. It's such a, a big community. And even when you speak of, you know, the Mexican culture, it's such a, a a large country. So, of course, I'm not, you know, trying to speak and generalize or oversimplify complex cultures, but from yeah. the perspective of the borderlands here in the Southwest, and I think for many collectivist cultures, our grandparents are sacred. They are the matriarchs or the patriarchs of the family. Um, there is an unspoken uh, sacredness to the knowledge that they hold, yeah. um, to the way that they co-parent and uh, care for grandchildren and um, they also I think a part of it too is even if you're not first generation if you're second or third I think we always think of our grandparents or the people that came before us as having made that ultimate sacrifice the original dreamers the people that brokered the culture and the language to establish family ties and to set roots you know in the borderlands here and you know, it is, it's the ultimate um, testament to family values is how we say, how we care for our elderly and, and you know, our, whether it's biological or not, you know, it could be a, a, a friend of the family or your godparent or whoever that elderly person is in your community. It is just the ultimate testament of how you were raised, your family values, and um, also the, those final acts of love, you know, being able to care for for their final days. And I think COVID has just shaken all of that up because um, talk to so many people um, that are having to quarantine and are not there caring for our elderly. And then uh, oh, there's so many implications, right, to to how we like to care for our elderly people, the the distancing, not wanting to place them at risk. And then unfortunately, because so many people are are dying, it's then it's all the aftermath and the trauma of not being able to, to grieve properly. It's just so many layers. It's such a, a, a great topic to bring up for the community. Or even just the idea of um, family members dying alone once they are intubated, I think. We don't think about how sad that is for them to pass away away from their families. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, and I also feel like I'm seeing a lot of the moms who I see are just the, I don't even know how to describe the look, but this combination of I've lost someone and suddenly I might be the one who's going to have to be the matriarch of the family. And I'm too young for it. Right, yeah. I think about that too, especially, you know, my mom was a a single mom in the States and 
you know, just our, our grandmother had, I think, an equal say <laughs> in how we were raised. You know, my mom would say, like, this is how I'm going to parent. And then my grandma would kind of step in. And, and that was always respected and honored. And uh, I think right now with our elderly having to be isolated because they're high risk, but also not being able to uh, be a part of that, of, of this, the process of saying goodbye and um, so many, so many of the things that we do as a community to, to grieve and to process that loss is in those days, being able to say goodbye, which we wish for everyone. But then also the, the other ceremonial aspects of it, you know, I was reading that the, you know, the morgues are, are saturated and they, there's no funerals, everything has to be virtual. And, and I think there's just a collective trauma around loss because we're not able to do any of those uh, rituals that are so important. They're those acts of love. They're the ways in which we process uh, that someone has passed from the physical. And it just breaks my heart when I've had to talk to people in the community that are just feeling like they can't even do that. Um and so it's definitely something that's very important. And I think we need to break the stigma and, and talk and, and check in with one another because it's happening and it's going to have a lot of consequences for families. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then when we throw in the added layer of um, the border, um, there's both people on the quote unquote Mexican side of the border which I, I, I'm putting that in quotes because, I don't know, it, the, as, as all of us who live here know, the border is such an arbitrary construct. Um, and people are used to going back and forth and seeing each other. But the fact that right now people can't go south um, because COVID is so out of control in the U.S., mm -hmm. um, which irony of ironies. And then people can't come north because the laws in the north aren't letting them come up to see their families when they're sick. Um, and I think that that's also been a real challenge because there are, I know so few families that are a one side of the border families. Everyone mm -hmm. is, everyone's from both sides. Yes. Most of us are. Yeah. Most of us, I think, well, I shouldn't generalize, but. Man, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with that too, Lisa. I think that for me, I mean, my dad lives on the other side of the border and it, this is just, you know, I mean, thank God for technology. I can talk to him and we can, you know, communicate, but it's very worrisome. You know, it's added a different layer of acute stress to my every single day because I think if something happens to him, I can't you know, just easily go there and uh, care for him. And, you know, for sure, it's kept me up at night thinking of, you know, in case of emergency, like, what what are we going to do? Because uh, for those of us that are multi-status families, we can't even, even if things change with the border, you know, our undocumented community cannot come and, or, or cannot risk the coming and going that's putting their lives at risk. And so it's, it's that added presence of the border and I think it enacts so much psychological violence right now to yeah. think of how, what are we going to do in the event of, of emergency with our undocumented loved ones on top of the fact that we have to worry about COVID-19 just like anyone else. Yeah. 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 It seems like, it, it really seems to me like we've lost something because there used to be 
I, I'm in a, a couple different doctors groups um, on Facebook, and people are talking about things like writing letters because it used to be it was really simple to get compassionate allowances to let people cross the border for deaths, illnesses, things like that. Um, and that now we're writing these letters and they fall on deaf ears. Yeah. Or, I mean, and I think people who didn't grow up along a border don't really understand, like, the cultural sharing that would occur amongst families. Like, um, my mom was born in Nogales, Sonora, and my grandparents immigrated in the early 60s with my with my mom. And I would spend two weeks out of the summer with my tia Lela on the other side, who was my grandmother's sister every summer and getting to have that experience of just going back and forth. And, and then my prima would come stay with us, right, for two weeks. And having that experience of like getting to share in like their cultural experience and her getting to come here. I think too, people don't realize the closeness that we have with our grandparents. Like I, re I called my mother's mom, my maternal grandmother, Ama, which is mother growing up. <laughs> yeah. I didn't call yeah. her Nana. I didn't call her unless I was referring to her to a, somebody else who wouldn't know who she was in our family tree. But when I was speaking to her directly, it was Ama. And so there's like this level of closeness um, that we have with our grandparents because like Michelle said, they co-parent, right? Like my grandmother could punish me just as harshly as my mom could um, <laughs> and so, with no judgment. So I think, um, I think seeing how COVID has impacted, like uh, uh, Dr. Cronin knows uh, my, uh, my tia Emma passed away from, uh, technically we don't know if it was COVID, but her husband had COVID at the same time. And she had um, cancer and, and then eventually died of what they say was pneumonia. She, so she was intubated and then passed away alone, which was awful. Oh and I think about how it impacted her grandchildren because we were all very sad and it was hard not to be able to have a funeral service. Not only that, but like her husband, my Theo, was being hospitalized at the same time so they wouldn't release her body to the morgue without her spouse's signature. So it just adds like these layers of stress around making sure that they can be interred in some sort of way um, and then the family finding some way of grappling with all of that and not being able to be together at the same time. And so I think my cousins and I and my Thea's grandchildren, we would get on house party, the app and talk to each other. But even our family in Nogales couldn't come. So it's, it's like this weird kind of like, we will grieve when this is over. Um, uh -huh which is sort of strange because then you're kind of like, well, life keeps moving, but you know that like at the end of this, we have to somehow circle back to this loss um, that feels kind of open-ended. I don't know if that makes sense, but, um, mm -hmm. and I can just only imagine, you know, how many people are having to deal with this and then having to be on social media and see people saying it's not true or I don't need to wear masks and recognizing how um, it impacts people of color in such a negative way. Um, 
which then becomes upsetting. I don't have a question, but um, no, <laughs> I thank I you for sharing because I feel <laughs> I relate to so much to what you said on so many levels. Like I, I if it does feel strange saying grandma because you know abuelito or abuelita is it, it's it's different. It translates in a more endearing way in Spanish, and I really I, I really um, appreciate what you said about. Um, our our elderly passing alone because I think that's still I don't know if you 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 all see this also but I think it's still very taboo to have someone other than family provide palliative care for mm-hmm. for our elderly like that is very I mean just speaking to the elders in my family it's just like absolutely not we always have to have family caring for our own you know it's like still the stigma right and so the idea of someone passing alone is so I think so, so traumatizing for so many families right now that have to grapple with that. And like you said, it's this open, ambiguous wound and it's like not closed and we're trying to move on, but it's also, there's so much there that still needs to be processed that we're not, we're not able to. Yeah. And just seeing like the policies change along the border really does impact our families. And, and so it's so, I feel like we're feeling the stressors of so many things. And then you add a virus on top of that in a quarantine. It can sometimes feel so overwhelming. How are, how are, uh, Michelle, how are you seeing people process? Are you starting to see people collect data or people speak in community about some of the effects that you're able to kind of like pinpoint? Um, I mean, I just have like anecdotally, like you said, I think I also saw that at first, like it's saying March, there's just a lot of people sharing. Um, there's just complete denial. Like this isn't happening. This is just, you know, something that the media has created. And I think I've seen a shift that, you know, now a lot of people are talking about how you know wearing a mask isn't for yourself it's for the most vulnerable and I think those kinds of that message has resonated with a lot of people as far as you know our families our elderly Um, but one thing I've seen in mutual aid groups that I've been able to participate in providing mutual aid is and I, I'm sure, Drew, that you could speak to this, is I think a lot of our undocumented community members haven't received proper preventative medical care for a long time. And now they don't just want to be tested, but they want to address a lot of other issues, you know, like mental health, reproductive health. And, you know, they have a lot of questions and a huge need that's not just COVID related, but it's almost like COVID is making all these things rupture and coming to a surface. And I've seen that and I'm struggling with that because our, you know, healthcare system is saturated. And, you know, we also have to take care of our healthcare workers. And I've seen like a lot of people want, like they want tests, they want them now. And of course, there's all all these other issues that have gone unaddressed because it's so expensive for our undocumented community to get care out of pocket. And so I don't know if you guys have seen this too. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, And I, I, I actually, on the whole masks and protecting others um, part of the discussion, I, so I, another thing I'm seeing in these Facebook groups is the people I know who are working in private practices are having 
huge issues with getting people to do things like wear masks into their offices. Um, and at our community health center, we had planned for that. We have a whole security plan. If someone gets disruptive, doesn't want to wear a mask. The truth is we haven't used that plan yet. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's part of that is we have such a large migrant population we take care of and people from countries where there's an understanding of how scary infectious diseases are and of more of a culture of we help take care of our community than we see in a large part of the um, European American culture. Um, and, and I've had some, I had an absolutely wonderful conversation last week with one of my families um, from um, another continent who talking to them and they're like, yeah, I don't get like, what's this concept of not wearing a mask to protect other people? Like they don't even, there, there aren't even the words for it. Wow. <laughs> Well, even, even in our culture, though, too, like, you know, this is one thing that I always talk about um, with my spouse in that, like, Americans are really good at participating in public safety measures. We naturally will form into lines. We, uh, you know, if you look at, like, our traffic laws, we all know how to turn blinkers on. It's very rare when you have somebody who's, like, a disruptive driver, we, I I remember we went to the Women's March here in town, the very first one. And uh, when people went to go back to their cars, they naturally got into a line to get into the garages, right? Like just naturally got into like this very pleasant, peaceful line. <laughs> Nobody organized <laughs> them. They didn't. They didn't need to. They They knew what to do and how to keep each other safe. And I was telling Jose, it's interesting when you go to other countries, uh, they'll laugh if you get into a line and they're like Americans and their need for lines and um, personal space, right? So this idea of like refusing to wear a mask is really bizarre to me because we adhere to safety measures all the time. Um, even when we're walking in stores, we'll naturally shift to the right if someone's coming past us on the left, right? Um and so it's, I just, it's really bizarre and it's, will, it's, it's a willful um, form of harm is the way oh. I see it when people aren't wearing masks. Um, oh yeah, totally. Both of what you just said, exactly my thoughts. When I saw the images of predominantly white militant people at the Capitol, I thought like, this is white privilege on another level like this is embodied you know white immunity because I can't imagine of the thousands of you know undocumented families I've worked with that they would ever want to bring attention to themselves because of the terror of police and of uh, and of just militant you know people that are now doing the job of of ICE and Border Patrol so yeah I completely you know relate to what you guys are saying and you know, I've worked with a lot of families from Central America and a lot of families from um, just other countries. And I, I completely agree. I think this is a very individualistic American 
white privilege issue, you know, and, and it, it's it's a, a form of racism because we know that people of color are dying disproportionately to, from, from this disease. Yeah. Yeah. I, how do you think, I think this period is going to generate millions of anthropology and sociology theses in the future. Um, <laughs> what do you think some of the takeaway themes are going to be about this time? Um, yeah, I think, you know, it's funny because I had to change my research and I had a grant that I had just received and everything changed to Zoom now. Um, and I think that one of the biggest things is anthropologists and, and sociologists always critique this idea of uh, the armchair studies or, you know, just doing things without being part of the community. And I think this is all an opportunity for us to rethink that. Um, I was just interviewing an activist and we were talking about, you know, the, the advocate that never leaves the coffee shop, right? That's just sitting on their laptop. And now I think that all of that, we have to rethink it because it is the safest way to communicate with people, to do our work without, you know, creating an other or an exotic. We have to stay home and protect you know, the communities we wish to study and doing that, you know, by doing that, we are keeping ourselves safe as well. And, and that virtual distance that doing things via, you know, Zoom or other platforms is the best way that we can, you know, talk to people right now until it's, it's safe, um, until it's safe for us to, to travel to other communities or, or, or to get inside, um, you know, focus groups and, and do all that kind of work. I think right now we need to be doing it via our our laptops as an and anthropologist I, I wonder, oh go ahead oh no i was just thinking i really wonder because what i'm i am seeing is especially in my transgender patients i take care of there's a different um interaction via zoom um that i'm seeing with a lot of these teens who are so relaxed and able to talk about themselves on Zoom in ways we never interacted in a doctor's office. Um, and I really, I find, I mean, it is, it is really hard for me when someone's going through something bad not to be able to put an arm around them or give them a hug or something like that. But on the flip side, with the good things and hearing more about people, Zoom really has opened up some new ways of interacting. Um, and I'm wondering if that, I mean, that may, there may be some really good research that comes out of this because people are on their home territory and able to be more themselves. <laughs> Yeah, I agree with that. I think uh, there's a lot of ways to get creative with um, the online platforms. And I think also um, I, I love seeing how young people are using the Internet for advocacy as well to organize um, and to participate in, in protests when they can't. Um, when they may be unable to physically attend, or I think for both of those fronts, both as far as research and, and activism, I think there's a lot of different ways in which we can get creative right now without um, putting others at risk. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed by the K-pop fans <laughs> and the ways in which they've used Twitter and uh, used social media to be disruptive, right? 
Um, and I, I think it's, um, I don't know, it's been fascinating to watch them when they've done um, collaborative disruptions. Uh, so, yeah, I agree with you that the activism that we're seeing play out is really wonderful. I have a question, uh, Michelle, like, do you, because you're an anthropologist, and so in time, if we, as we see this sort of loss of our matriarchs, right, during the time of COVID or our, or our, old, or our elders, as you mentioned, do you think we'll see a, a loss in culture? You know, I was, I was thinking about that, um, you know, I feel like just the other day, I don't, I don't know that loss is the word. I know, of course, that it's dynamic and constantly changing. And but I think that for sure, it, things are, are we're, we're going to there'll be future generations that are still going to be grappling with this because I think that the wisdom that our, our elders, you know, have that they share with us and the traditions and all the young grandchildren that are, are not going to benefit from those interactions with their grandparents because they've, you know, they're passing at, you know, disproportionately higher rates because of COVID. I think that's a, a generation that is going to miss out um, in so many ways from having that interaction with with the elderly person in, in the family. And I think the biggest thing for me that's a red, that, you know, is a huge red flag, and it's probably because I was a practitioner and was in social work, is the trauma and, like, the grief that we're experiencing right now that's going to fester for a long time. Because I do think that there's intergenerational trauma that gets carried in families, and I think it's... It's like you said, it's just this open wound that we're not, even, we are very resilient. We're very resilient people, and I don't want to downplay that. But I think um, we have to process um, this this cultural loss and this family loss that we're seeing. And I think that's almost more important to me than what it means for, you know, culture and material culture and, and all the other stuff that does fascinate me very much. But I think what matters most is the well-being of our community. Yeah. What in terms of, because I've been also thinking about how this, I don't know, it's so hard to, it, in some ways, this is unprecedented because we've lost so many people in such a short amount of time. In other ways, it's not unprecedented because um, Indigenous people have gone through periods where they have lost numbers like this in this short of a t amount of a time when col um, colonialism comes in. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm just, in terms of that bigger picture of like things we can look to in the past for how people dealt with it, is there anything you've seen that you feel like compares? That's a tough one. I think... <laughs> It's hard because I feel that whenever we, we look back at, um, we can sort of like romanticize or look back at moments where, you know, oppression breeds resistance and we see people come together and that's how we have survived. But I also don't want to downplay um, the suffering that's that's happening, it, it, you know, when we think of the Navajo Reservation and all these these ways in which um, the government has failed to respond correctly, and it's hard to look back at um, at moments without you know really 
I guess, uh, romanticizing the those moments where where people have, you know, resisted and been successful. But I do find a lot of hope in the, the way in which community is showing up for one another at this time. Um, I, I think one of the things that inspires me is um, the uprising of, of the Black Lives Matter movement and the solidarity across groups right now here locally with uh, the death of uh, Carlos Adrián Ingram Lopez, but also just the solidarity of the the marches and every and and um, across the nation really for George Floyd, but also just even the smaller ways in which people have showed up to even you know, for my husband, I mentioned um, that he's uh, ER physician and just the making of, of masks for the, the healthcare providers uh-huh. that people who are home with a sewing machine and are doing all of these, these just individual acts of, of kindness. And, and I guess that's now activism because they're sewing masks and doing more than we're seeing, you know, the government do for our healthcare providers. And so that those small ways in which people show up for each other has really inspired, inspired me and, and um, all the campaigns happen nationally, because I think along with COVID, people of color are also experiencing and watching the murder of people of color. So there's all that terror that's happening. And so I I think I find hope in all of that. Yeah. I definitely have noticed a lot more caring between people. I know that my patients who I see, um, I started intentionally asking people how they were surviving this period, how they were doing. And so we have great conversations, but every single time it's, you know what, it can't be that bad for me. I'm stuck at home. How is it for you? And I'm thinking like, oh, that, I mean, I have this full gear of protective equipment. Um, And yes, it's hard and it is difficult, but um, just the kindness and the outpouring of people bringing in masks to us and making sure, asking how we're doing and it, it's the, I mean, it's people calling and saying, you know, I just found an old box of N95 masks in my shed. Um, <laughs> do you want them? And it's just incredible. Um, because I do feel like we're all on the same team um, at the moment. For those of us who are on the on the we believe science, we believe in masks, we believe in medicine <laughs> side. Um, I feel like we really have, we really have gotten a level of we're on the same team out of this that I hope um, and I think really can stick around into the future. I hope so. I think also a thing that inspires me is that we can always create new traditions and you know we can we create culture and we we change it and and we have this opportunity to carry this forward like you just said and that is also very inspiring to me um and hopefully in in showing up you know solidarity across marginalized groups like if if you're showing up for this group right now and and this march and you're you know helping take temperatures and putting masks on people and sending people home who shouldn't be there if you're doing that kind of work maybe we can also get you to do mutual aid in the desert you know come learn about deaths in the desert and water you know water aid groups and i i hope so i hope this is a tipping point and that we can also create something new from from the tragedy and from this new form of uh terror that we're fighting and seeing 
Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think, I, I, I mean, I, I think it, it, a lot of people are starting to realize that getting out and doing something about a bad situation and helping others actually helps them get through. Yeah. Um, and that it is, despite it being something where you're doing something for someone else, there is a selfish component of it of it feels good. It feels good to help people. Um, <laughs> it feels good to show up for your friends. Um, and I hope I, and I, and I really think that's a new message that's coming through, especially among the young people mm-hmm. um, who have not, who just, I don't know. I'm impressed every day by the youth I get to serve. <laughs> they kind of blow me away. <laughs> and thank you guys for doing the work that you're doing. I've, you know, I'm, I'm still a very tactile, hard book, you know, book, hard copy kind of person and audible. But, you know, now seeing this is kind of the perfect time to pick up podcasts and to learn about some how to show up for people which is what you guys do on this podcast i've been catching up with your episodes and it's sort of this perfect time for people to tune into something like this and educate themselves and figure out how to show up for each other so i'm very grateful for what you guys have have been doing but probably you know you're having getting more listeners right now during this time yeah um... we have fun i'm you know i'm also wondering because i know you've done um a lot of work with dreamers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, my, um, what is she? She's my niece by marriage. Um, is it, it runs an immigration law clinic in DC. And from what I'm hearing from her and a bunch of the other immigration lawyers I know, um, for dreamers and their families right now, it is impossible because the courts have just stopped. Mm-hmm. And they're doing nothing. And I'm wondering, are you seeing that as well? Yeah, the the courts, the immigration courts, I'm sure your niece probably has told you about how archaic the immigration court system is uh-huh. and, yeah. um, you know, still works via snail mail. And oftentimes um, I work with a lot of young people who um, have have DACA status and are, are just have been trying to go through the process of various, um, we kind of call them all dreamers, but really there's a lot of different paths that young people, um, who, who come to the United States young can pursue, you know, DACA being one of them. And then also, you know, um, special immigrant juvenile visa and you know there's tons of different things that uh sort of get lumped into this group called dreamers but i think it's been a problem for many years and that the immigration court system is so incredibly archaic and still works in these i mean i've had i've had young people that have told me they've waited for their court hearing for two years so they could have been minors when they started but you know it's been an entire lifetime if we think of you know young people's development they've moved they've moved states and like right now that everything is you know it's everything is up in the air as far as for example the new decision with daca um the fact that you know that decision came down that you know the the government has incorrectly or uh, shouldn't have targeted young people in the manner that they did by closing the program and then we have a, a court um on the east coast now saying that the program the 
the USCIS must immediately begin accepting applications again. So I think that uh, what I'm seeing is that advocates and young people are moving quickly to try to uh, stay as up to date as they can on these decisions that are being rolled out every day mm-hmm. and um, to fundraise as well. It's so important to get people uh, who are already economically disadvantaged immediately the, the funds they need to renew, to apply, and now it's opening based on the recent decision, which I'm sure might get appealed, but now they, they have to open it to new recipients of DACA that have not had DACA before. So uh, that's opening a whole new floodgate of you know young people that need to meet with attorneys and they need to do so quickly and need to begin applying and beginning that process. And so... Um, I think every day there's been some sort of decision that's been new or an update and it's changing rapidly. And um, I've worked with a lot of recipients of DACA and that's that's mostly what I'm seeing is that every day there's something new and um, something that you need to get ahead on. Yeah, yeah. And, and realizing that the court system is not going to expand or move faster at any time in the near future um for the or the u.s or the um you know the u.s immigration service is going to do anything that's going to move fast at any time um which developmentally when you're talking about young people is horrible um because the one thing they need more than anything else is a feeling of permanency and safety right that's i think that that is the um that is like the number one uh, thing that impacts uh, multi-status families and immigrants in this country is that uh, uncertainty. Even if you have all your document all your documentation in place, right? Um, and so it's it's an uncertain, scary time. My question mm-hmm. is: so today I'm having like I'll be super vulnerable. I'm having a really hard day today. Um, I think today is one of those quarantine days where I'm like, 2020 is really awful. Um, what we've seen in this with this administration is awful. The last four years of it has been stressful. I think, um, I think that we will see emotional repercussions, like like mental health um, stressors that will carry forward in people who were impacted in different ways during these last four years, whether that be, um, you know, immigration stat, like I think the stress of DACA and having to wait for the Supreme Court to bring about uh, that answer or like the rollback of trans rights and the stressors that families and children and trans adults feel waiting every day to see if something else is gonna get rolled back. being able to see police brutality online at the click of a button. Um, And so today for me has felt really heavy with what we're seeing out of Portland with CBP grabbing people, uh, the loss of John Lewis and CT Vivian, um, still recognizing that there are children in internment camps um, and that COVID is rampant. And understanding that um, racial oppression is far from over. And so I'm wondering in what ways can we help our communities deal with the stress of this time? 
that is like lasting and um, meaningful. Have you, have either of you thought about that at all? Or, cause I know like my stress level will shift from day to day depending on what's happening in our country. So what are you seeing or what, what are recommendations when you see this or, or as an anthropologist, like what are, what are ways in which this impacts us as a community? Yeah. This level of distrust, this level of fear. Yeah, I think um, I really appreciate your vulnerability and I really relate to that. I think every day has been a roller coaster. Mm -hmm. Um, I think at first I was, I thought it was very, you know, kind of superfluous to get together on Zoom and do like the Zoom happy hours or the Zoom birthdays. Or at first I was like, well, I don't know, you know, that we've, we've had all these, all this messaging that sort of have, demonize like smartphones and being online all the time and oh this generation and you know but I think now I'm seeing that holding space for people is super important um and and it's not just like showing up for people via zoom or by phone that's just one-sided you know just take on that emotional labor or just you know hear how your friend is being um impacted I think these moments are also moments of mutual recognition but education you know like recently I was talking to one of my uh trans girlfriends and she was educating me about you know the death toll of trans people since George Floyd's murder and you know just as a cis hetero person I thought you know we were just gonna kind of have a conversation and and sort of have a healing conversation where we're both gonna walk out feeling a little bit better and plan this new project you know, because we were talking about creating and creating culture and creating art. And it ended up being very educational in what it taught me from the conversation. And, um, but I, I don't have an answer. I just think that that's so important what you're pointing out that every day can bring its own challenges and showing up for one another and even becoming educated in ways in which we may be short-sighted or limited, like just focusing on one movement or one way in which we can show up for people right now, but completely turning a blind eye on other things that are happening. Um, and I just really appreciate you bringing that up because it's very, it's true. I feel like every day is, is something new. And all I have found that's really beneficial is, like I said, ad, you know, supporting groups that are um, campaigning and supporting them virtually because I've I can't go out and, and expose others, but also showing up for people in ways that are new that I'm not really comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like the virtual spaces and platforms. And and also, I think right now, telemedicine and therapy is actually very accessible because I, I've seen a reduction in prices because it's via, you know, platforms and for me, a lot of it has been reaching out to people and breaking that stigma and making sure that they know that even people who, who seemingly have it all together are in contact with the therapist, are talking to other people in the field and, and holding space for one another. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's that the, the, I, 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 mean, I want to go back to things that help me, they're helping me get through this right now, but on the mental health and the telehealth thing, absolutely fascinating our behavioral health people um who i work with when they were working in person the no-show rate and most therapists will tell you this is somewhere between 30 and 50 percent 
incredibly high no-show rates. They are having close to 100% show rates now, Mm. which I hope means we change some of this for the future and realize that some of the people who need mental health support the most need to be able to do it from their homes or from where they feel safe and that people need those options. Um, And it has not surprised me at all, but the... I think the um, how the extent of it, how how large an effect it has had, has been amazing. Um, and I do think telehealth on some things is going to revolutionize how we do medicine. Um, I have to tell you on the getting through things. So um, I had forgotten about this until Lizette got me to listen to the Happiness Project podcast. <laughs> um, is when I was in residency. And I was having a really bad time. Um, it was the middle of the night. I had someone I was really worried about. I was doing menial labor to try and get them through. And I felt like I wasn't really doing anything. And I remember, like, I on my walks to the lab to pick up, you know, blood transfusions, I would think to myself of the things I was grateful for that day. Um and it's something that the happiness project has the science of it, of why it works. Um, and I feel like one of the weekends are actually really hard for me. Um, because during weekdays I'm at work. Um, I feel like I'm actually contributing, um, to helping people feel better, um, in ways that I sometimes don't didn't feel before this Mm -hmm. um and it really does help me out um and so that has been something um that i find that helps me um is looking where i feel like i'm making a difference um and remembering that um and you and lizette does you do tons of things that make a difference in people's lives and help them out um, and I think sometimes we forget and we say to ourselves, well, yeah, that's just what I do. And it's, you know, I, it's not, it's not as hard for me as it once was because I know how to do it, but mm-hmm. reminding ourselves that, no, we're actually doing something. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. I, you know, I try to remind myself, but there are moments, there's been moments in this pandemic where I'm like, I'm such a coward. There's so much more I could be doing. Because it feels strange not to be able to be hands-on in some sort of way. Yeah, Um, yeah. And so you feel like it's a weird kind of overwhelming feeling of like I'm not being impactful. And there's really, there's really, really difficult things happening in our country and in our communities. And then understanding that the best thing to do is to stay home, but also feeling like, that you're not showing up, right? That posting on Facebook doesn't feel enough, like enough or sharing information. And so I agree with you all that donating, definitely don't donating when we can, if we can, boosting information as it happens. Um, but it, it's, it feels like an overwhelming time. I, I feel uh-huh. like because it has felt like such a roller coaster these last four years, it's uh-huh. sort of, it sort of has felt like the carpet has been pulled out from under us in so many different ways. Um, And it's this tug and pull where we see these really, like, 
uh, I'll, I'll, uh, when the Supreme Court ruled on DACA and when they ruled on Title Seven, I had like emotionally prepared for the worst. And so yeah. it didn't matter that it was like, a, I, Dr. Cronin sent me a text. It was like, did you see this? And I literally started sobbing because I had held so much tension in my body around these two things and to prepare for the worst that to have a positive outcome felt deeply overwhelming. And I was grateful for it, but it just felt like you don't even realize that you're carrying this stress with you. Um and or like, you know, Michelle was talking about multi-status families before my husband became a citizen. I think we're on three years now that he got his citizenship. Um, there was a level of tension that I felt every time he left the house to go drive by himself. He makes fun of me because I, I used to like to go everywhere with him. And um, <laughs> and uh, it's because we work together. And, and But I didn't realize that really my need to go everywhere with him was to ensure that he made it back home. Because I was always worried, what if he got pulled over? Or like there's generational trauma around people who were falsely deported, right? And we've heard these oh. stories or had family members experience them or friends. And then the trauma of trying to get back, get your reunite your family, right? So I was always like, he makes fun of me. He was like, I got to go to the store. And I was always like, I'm going to go with you. <laughs> he would tell me why. And, it, you know, these ideas around the ways in which we carry stress, but because we're creating uh, habitual ways to um, cope with potential things that could possibly go wrong, right? And so I, this time, these last, I was, I've been reflecting on it today. These last four years have felt really, really, they, they will, I believe they will have some sort of lasting impact. And maybe our young children won't even remember it as much, right? Like, I think about the political systems or or things that my parents will say were really hard for them in like the 80s or 90s, and I don't really remember them, right? Um, but I think as adults, we'll carry this time through as kind of like, and it, I, I can't even, like a distrust, like an understanding that demo- whatever I, idea of democracy was is really fragile. Um, and how quickly things can shift and change if we're not careful. Um, and that progress doesn't move in the way that we think it does. Like my dad went to school at a time when you would get hit for speaking Spanish, right? And then I get to go, uh, my son gets to go to school where they have like a Spanish immersion class, right? Um, and so you think progress shifts and moves, but then you hear the rhetoric against immigrants and Mexicans and here and in the term anchor baby being used everywhere all of a sudden all over social media and so it's this understanding that progress doesn't move in the same way that we think it does in the way that time does right Uh so it's just been so much to kind of grapple and think about and I'm sure in like five ten years Michelle you're gonna have a lot to write about (laughs) <laughs> there will be yeah, a lot of people I sharing think, this experience yeah absolutely and I think I just echo with a lot of the the feeling and the sentiment of what you're sharing because uh, I think some days I think with Brianna Taylor with George Floyd with trying to hop you know hop online and try to 
trying to donate and, and hearing, you know, even Black Lives Matter Tucson posted some a very important announcement about, you know, when organizations have reached their limit, they're not accepting donations because they've received so many. So it's time to help other organizations. And I just felt this heaviness of privilege. Like even I want to, you know, I want to log in and help, but I don't even have that savior complex. You know, I, mm-hmm. I want to feel the gratification of helping and making a difference. But I think, um, I think also when I have to stop and, and journal and write things down, because even though now my research is online, I have to remind myself that I have an opportunity to also create material culture and create these these important things that are going to be specific to this time period that in the future, hopefully my children and and future generations will be able to access and, and read and, and understand from a critical perspective from a person of color what was happening at this time. And I find solace in that. I know an indigenous person told me once, a friend, my, you know, existence is resistance. And I, I hope they don't mind me appropriating that and, and using it as a, as a Chicana. But I think in so many ways, like our people shouldn't be, shouldn't be here surviving this because of all that we have experienced. And we are, you know, and I just tried to focus on and become rooted in, in my ancestors and all the people that have gotten me this far. And also like the, the amount that we have survived as, as people. And that gives me sort of that impetus to want to keep fighting um, despite, you know, the loss of giants, like you mentioned, like John Lewis, like that one just... You know, it just feels like 2020 has just been filled with these, you know, horrible tragedies. But also, um, it, it just gives me a lot of motivation to to want to move forward in a way that I'm rooted in my privilege and aware of it, but also uh, want to use it to to help other movements. Yeah. And so we're back and we just, I had stopped the recording because we were hitting our time and we had a really wonderful conversation in between our recording where we were talking about like the duality of what's happening, that we're seeing racism rampant, uh, police brutality rampant, we're seeing ugliness on social media, kind of the worst of humanity really kind of showing its face. And then we're seeing, you know, uh, these really affirming Supreme Court rulings that are kind of bending towards social justice and equality in a way that we did not expect. And seeing, um, really, I will say that like, the thing that I'm, that I can say I'm grateful for is that when I was yelling, you know, um, racism is real, Black Lives Matter years ago, and people were really afraid to do this, right? Um, It's been important for me to see people speak up now, like better now than never. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think, you know, in the last interview we had uh, with um, Trey, he said that... um, there was a vulnerability that we were all experiencing in COVID that allowed us to really see this moment for what it is, right? And to see uh-huh. and and to like come forward and to speak out in ways that we hadn't before um, because we're quarantined and we're alone or with our families. And so this vulnerability has really allowed us to um, 
push back and be vocal in a way we hadn't as communities before. Um, and so I think, you know, cause as we were talking before we stopped recording earlier, it was like, this is a really difficult time and how are we coping and what are we doing? And so I think that that vulnerability is allowing us to be open to change, uh-huh. uh, in a way that we hadn't before because we were so comfortable before. And so in that way, I am grateful for what this next generation is going to do. And also Gen Gen Z is like super radical. I keep saying this over and over again. They are radical in a way that I haven't seen in a long time. And it probably has to do with the fact that they're like in, you know, student debt rates and inability (laughs) to get like jobs that will give you a living wage zero access to medical care, like really the generations before have made it so difficult for them to be, to be able to thrive that like all they're, all they're able to do is radicalize, right. For a better life. Um, yeah. Yeah. They have nothing to lose. Exactly. And so, um, I'm very like in awe of them (laughs) always. And so, cause even my, my soon to be 13 year old will say things to me and I'm like, Oh, (laughs) yeah, I didn't, you know, that's super radical. I didn't think you were thinking about that right now. So (laughs) it'll be interesting to see what, what flourishes from this moment. Um, Michelle, do you have any, um, what are like, as we get closer to ending, what are three things that you feel like people who are quarantining, but want to be of service? What can they do? Um, I think one of the one of the organizations that people should know about that I just is very near and dear to my heart um, is the Florence Project, uh, the Immigration Refugee Rights Project for org. And I just want people to I would love for everyone to be aware that they are the organization here in Arizona. I know you may have listeners from elsewhere, but here in Arizona, they are the legal organization that provides uh, representation to the children in camps and cages. Um, and they work with medically fragile and mentally atypical populations that are incarcerated and cannot afford legal representation. And I know that many of us don't want to be home quarantined, but we have to remember that there are still children in cages. And um, I just, I wish everyone understood how pivotal it is that Florence Project exists and that people become aware if you are in a position to donate or become involved, please do. But they're huge. And um, another organization, again, that's very important because I think young people we reap the benefits of the progress and the struggle of a lot of young and elderly people that have fought these radical fights. And I think also scholarships A through Z is, is crucial. And they are working with uh, people who are in need of DACA applications and they, they work with all sorts of young people um, and they're huge as well. And it's very important to support them because of everything happening with DACA right now and, the liminal period that young people find themselves in and live in because they don't know if tomorrow, you know, what will happen to the program. We hope it'll be the lay of the land now, but right now they don't know what's going to happen. And so those are two organizations that I wish everyone knew about and contributed if they could. 
And the third thing, if, if I can just say the third thing, third, third thing really quickly, which is uh, the importance of mental health and therapy right now and breaking that stigma um, around people uh, talking to someone through all of this because we can't, you know, fight and, 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 and be in solidarity with the progress that's happening and the movements that are fighting if we are not ourselves healthy and whole. And so I think that's very important as well. Michelle, you mentioned, I, you mentioned something really important when you were talking about uh, organizations to donate to um, and to connect to and learn from. Do you know of any resources for, let's say we have somebody who is listening who is unsure about immigration, right? They're not aware of how um, a uh, climate change and economic uncertainty impact and lead to migration. Are there mm-hmm. resources or websites that draw those lines so that people can begin to see kind of like the ways in which we have contributed to economics, like other countries' economies collapsing because of climate change, because of um, economic uncertainty, which caused them to want to come to our country for a better life? Okay, like reading lists or <laughs> books or just, or just general like websites. Website, or... Like something that would be an easy for like an easy intro for somebody that was just not aware of like why immigration happens, right? Or the different reasons for immigration. Right, yeah. Let me think about that for a second. There's so many things that come to mind on like the, the, um, economic front like the you know there's so many documentaries and films and of course i have you know you made me excited because i have a whole you know bookshelf on just immigration but um as far as like a one a, a go-to resource let me think about that for a second <laughs> have to... will you text it to me and i can share it on our facebook page where this podcast will go up yeah, absolutely. And I, I, the reason I say that is because, you know, it, it just, there's so many levels to this. There's, mm-hmm. um, of course, primarily I read books and I, I think to myself immediately, these are a couple of books that really talk about climate change, immigration, and, and, and the economy be- behind securing the border and NAFTA and the displacement of people and all these things. But as far as like one go to, I want to think about it because I don't want to just off the top of my head share a resource that's not, you know, gender inclusive or, you know, I don't want to make that mistake. And and let me go through a few things and vet them and then I will send them for your listeners. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Thank you. And then our final question that we always like to ask some people is who inspires you? Oh man, um, there's so many people that inspire me, but I think um, right now, I think people on the front lines inspire me um, in general. Um, I think right now, my one of my biggest inspirations is uh, my husband and the ER workers on the front lines. I know that's a shameless plug. <laughs> um, and um, but I, I do have to say that because I think that um, I, I'm just in awe of the oath that our physicians have taken, all of them, you know, including Drew. But I think also just the fact that people have left their homes and can't see their children 
and are quarantined just because of, of the decision they've made to treat and care for the most vulnerable, you know. Um, and really, those guys in the ER see it all. I feel like they see um, all sorts of things. <laughs> Some they're probably not as interested in seeing. Um, but you see it all. And right now, um, I think the work that they're doing is um, they're heroes and they deserve uh, for for communities to, to listen and not treat them as sacrificial for us to follow the, the guidelines by the CDC and protect each other and protect the most vulnerable. But right now I'm inspired every day to do something to make a difference be, because I know that they're on the front lines fighting this, this virus. Yeah. Definitely. It um, is amazing. It is absolutely amazing to me. The stories I'm hearing from people and, the choices they're making about being, I mean, it's been months. Some people have been away from their loved ones um, or see I mean, people talking about going home to see their kids through the front door. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just none of us considered that would be a thing when we were however young we were when we decided to go to med school. Yeah. It yeah. never crossed our minds that like oh i might need to be away from my family um unless you were going abroad Mm -hmm. it was never a thought yeah definitely and and the reason i say my husband too is because he's fluent in spanish and um also chicano as well so we've we're both first generation and um you know, my, my mother-in-law works in a tortilla factory, so she's um, she's uh, ill, right, because we know that our food service workers are considered essential, even though they're the most vulnerable and underpaid. My father-in-law is no longer with us, but um, we never thought that we would make it this far. We just kind of, uh, we've been married now almost 11 years, and we kind of just navigated this higher ed system hoping that it would work work out and we when he took his oath and you know got you know was matched here in tucson we knew he would serve the tucson community but we really had no idea that COVID 19 was even on the horizon no one could have imagined um what this all would entail right and so that's why i selfishly name him but really all of our uh, all of our healthcare workers on the front lines Hey, I have a. Qu- I'm going to throw another question in there now, especially based on the theme of what we've talked about today. When you talk about, you know, the two of you negotiating the higher ed system and just having to have faith and not sure of how far you'd go, things like that, I'm going to make a guess that your parents had absolutely no doubt how far you were going to go. Because <laughs> <laughs> I get to see proud parents in my office all the time, and they. in a different capacity she's a food service worker for the district so the delivering the mobile meals and stuff and so and then um you know my my father-in-law is no longer with us but he came here as a farm worker and so you know they're they're the original dreamers right they're the reason that my husband and i are where we are Uh yeah definitely um so my person uh who inspires me is um, I'm going to say my ama, my nana Malia, 
Um, and it's because, I don't know, she taught me so much. And uh, I can't sort frijoles without crying because i that's something I did with her all the time. Um, and I just miss her every day. And I think that um, her passing away when I was pregnant with Daniel, I think it's been a disservice for him not to have that because his my husband's um, mother passed away when Daniel was very small. And I think it's been a disservice for him not to see a multilingual. Uh, well, he does get to see it with my sister-in-laws and I, but um, to see that... Um, that matriarch and multilingual experience happening in the home. Um, he he gets to see my husband and I speak Spanish to each other, and unfortunately, he didn't. We did. We were bad about teaching it to him, um, so he calls it our secret language. But he didn't get to like really <laughs> understand like tradition and culture and the ways in which we interact, right? Um, and there's times where I will answer to my child in Spanish and he will stare at me. Like I did it the other day and he's like, don't pretend that I understand you because I don't, I don't know what you just said. Um, and so uh, I, I sometimes think that abuelitas are like so important to our holding on to our language. Uh, Spanish was my first language because my grandmother took care of me when my mom was off to work when I was really small. And so I think that when, Drew, you mentioned doing this episode, I thought about all the ways in which my child doesn't get to have the traditions and, and experiences that I did growing up and how he misses out on that. So I... um yeah, she inspires me all the time, and I think about her all the time. And then I think about how um, I'm lucky to be where I am. She washed clothes for the neighbors; that was her job. Um, and she was, you know, she was the person that people would bring their laundry to, and she would wash it. And my grandfather worked for the railroad system, and so we. I think about being first generation and the sacrifices that our families made and the histories that and that we carry forward and just am in awe of them you know so yeah that's my inspiration this week it's amazing i totally just realized something because you're talking about the frioli story Mm -hmm. so anytime (laughs) this is the this is the white boy version of this (laughs) anytime (laughs) i'm taking green beans and doing snap beans I start crying because that's what I did with my grandmother. Yeah. We used to sit on the floor together snapping beans. Yeah. And my mom doesn't, you know, my mom wasn't the greatest cook, but I know she tries to cook with Daniel when we could see each other right now. I haven't seen my dad since February. We've driven past each other like to say hi. Um, And I haven't seen my mom either. And, but I know before this, she would try really hard to make food with him because that's such a moment of connection. Right. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, there are so many things like, you know, I can't listen to like Juan Gabriel and not think about like, all these memories of Rocio Dulcal and like all these weekends watching like, you know, different things with my grandmother and that experience. I just feel like it's it, they're special moments, you know, and I know my mom tries to recreate them, but 
there's like a cultural element that's sort of missing, unfortunately, from them that I wish he could have. Or even just like, we're not religious people, but just like posadas and things that we did just because it was a cultural thing to do. Uh, Absolutely. That we, all, that we all participated in. And I'm like, Daniel will never like know what a posada is. And like, I keep telling my husband that like my dream, my like dream, and I hope whoever, if there's somebody listening that they have the capacity and the energy to do this. But if you grew up here in Tucson in the 90s, they used to have fiestas. I haven't been to one since the 90s. So like these huge fiestas where they would bring in like these Norteño bands and cumbia bands and all of this stuff. I keep telling my husband after the Rona's over, I hope somebody throws like the biggest fiesta ever. Like I just want to dance and <laughs> <laughs> celebrate and um, yeah, be pandemic free, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. Wow. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you. Wait, is Drew going to share the inspirational? Oh Drew, did you not share? <laughs> no. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I was just, li- I mean, oh, I'm listening to all of these. Okay, so I'm going to tell you this week. It, mine is also doctors, but it's two very specific doctors. Okay. Um, one is Anthony Fauci. Yeah. Um, oh. Who I will tell you. I was, when I was in ACT UP, he was the enemy. Um, Early on in the AIDS crisis, he was the enemy. Um, And he um, evolved there. Um, And I know there were some of the big, like Larry Kramer, the founder of ACT UP, who died last year. um, Or was that earlier this year? It was early this Um, year. It was earlier this year. Said, like, near by the end of, of his life, the two of them would talk on the phone and have conversations wow. um, was how much he changed. And hearing him now, I, I've heard a bunch of interviews with him lately where he talks about how for him, it's about the science. And someone asked him, did you ever think of leaving because of all the politics that's gotten involved in all these presidents you've been with? And he said, no, because the work is too big. Yeah. Um, and it's just amazing to me, someone who is that focused on the science. Um, and the other person, okay, I'm going to say I admire you and I want you to do your best. Ruth Bader Ginsburg's doctor. Oh, Take care of her. If you need part of a liver, if you need a kidney, if you need anything, <laughs> call me. I will give it to you. Because um, that, that woman, that Oh, she's such a fighter and such a strong person. And I wish she didn't have to be right now, but I'm glad that she has a team that I know is taking care of her. Yeah, I have all these like virtual velitas in my mind that I keep lighting for people. And she's got like 30. They can't be real. I would burn things down. But um, yeah, all the prayers and velitas for RBG, for sure. Yeah. That's awesome. Lisa, I hope you don't mind if I share with my friends in linguistics that your your family has a secret language. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Daniel is like, that is a secret language. What are you saying about me? Because he always says, it's after you get upset with me that you speak it to each other. And it's true, Porosito. Like, we're like, oh, yeah, we're venting to each other about. I love that. Yeah, the secret language. Um, so, yeah. Thank you both today. Sorry, Drew. I totally missed it. 
Today no problem. Thank you. Me. This was so wonderful. I'm actually feeling my, very much upbeat after this. So, Michelle, oh, thank really? you so I feel much. like I was so... Uh, um, I feel like I was so, you know, bleak because I'm, I'm, I'm having one of those days too, you know, where it's just like, oh my God, I work from a laptop. I'm not doing anything, you know? And so I'm sorry if I was all over the place. No, I mean, not I, at think, all. I think that so much is going to come out of this moment. I mean, it, and hopefully it'll, it'll impact the arts and, you know, impact new forms of communication, but it's hard not to feel bleak. I'm with you today. Today is one of those days where I'm like, this is awful. 2020 is awful. <laughs> I yeah. am looking forward to the party at the end. I really, really want a fiesta at the end of this. Like, just, like, bring Bronco in. Like, have them play some music for us. Like, Is that, I think, he, I, you know, I think what you're talking about, were, were some of those that you're talking about, like, at Reed Park or Kennedy Park? At Kennedy Park, the big fiesta. Yes, okay, yes. <laughs> oh my my husband and I were talking about them. I was like, remember the fiestas in the nineties, like the late nineties when you would go mid nineties yeah. and they would bring in like little Joe y la familia and all of these <laughs> yes. like bands and you would dance and like yeah, I need one of those in my life. So and after my tia Emma passed away in April, I played a lot of bronco for her because she loved bronco. And so like, yeah. I'm, it's just like thinking about family and like the music that kind of embodies us, right? So yeah, I need a fiesta. Thank yeah. you so much, Michelle. We appreciate no, you. No, thank you guys. No, thank you guys. I'm I'm honored to be a part of it. Um, I just started with with the quarantine. I started podcasts, and um, thank you for all that you guys do. I really think that this is the future of making information accessible. You know, I read journal articles, but you know, I'm always reminded that people prefer you know, to just get in their car and listen to a podcast and to get information this way. And I was catching up with some of your episodes. I know uh, Kristen Godfrey and I briefly worked with Russ Toomey. So I was catching up on your episodes. And thank you guys for this amazing platform. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. Bye.